a second parcel here and it's not ringing enough for me. Um, let's gavel this to order then. Um, Yuko Asada, I am Josh Quillen for other folks who maybe don't, don't know. Um, this is our, going to be our first episode of the Pan and Tune podcast with Yuko Asada and Josh Quillen. Um, and I think it's important for us to, we've been texting a bit, a bit back and forth about how to introduce this to folks and, and also how to make it clear what our intent is because intent and context is something that's crucially important to me, but also is important to the history of steel pan and what it is that we're all talking about and learning about here. Um, and uh, you are someone who I've known in the world for a while, but through Cliff Alexis. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was interesting, maybe uh, before we get into maybe Cliff, um, just maybe for you to tell us, the listeners, people who are listening or watching, who you are, why why are you on this podcast with me, and then why you think I'm on the podcast with you, and we can go, and then I'll do a little bit of background on me. And then I would love to spend the bulk of the time talking about, I think, our mutual colleague, friend, mentor. I mean, he wasn't my mutual husband. He was your husband. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll stop. That, that's I stop at the water's edge there. But like, but he is someone for whom both of us, uh, he was incredibly important. And I think for the history of the art form. So um, if that seems like an okay plan to, for you, um, I would oh, just love perfect. to turn the, turn the floor over to you and, and uh, learn a little bit more about you. Sure. Okay. Well, thank you, Josh. So my name is Yuko Asada. I am from Japan and I lived in Japan for 10 years. And when I lived in Japan, I started learning uh, music through Yamaha Music School. And what that contained was um, uh, a lot of singing and also ensemble playing uh, using smaller instruments. So that is where I fell in love uh, with uh, playing with other people. And I started playing the piano when I was six. And after uh, moving to the United States at age 10, I continued to play the piano. Uh, I first saw the steel pan or steel band performing in Wheeling, West Virginia. So that is where I grew up and lived from age 10 until 20 or so. Well, and... Sorry to interrupt you, Go. I did not know that you grew up in Wheeling, West See, This is why we do this oh. podcast. I've known you for 10 years now, and I feel like I never knew that you grew up in Wheeling, West Virginia. Ooh. Okay, okay. Yeah, that's why, like, you know, I have, like, a lot of, like, I feel super close to people from University of Akron. And one reason is because of Cliff, but the other reason is because I grew up you know, two hours away from Akron. So, yeah, yeah. So, you know. Well, and how close is Wheeling to Morgantown? Morgantown? It's one hour. Okay, because it's, anyway, just for future, well, as we talk later, like, that's also, like, in terms of where Trinidadians uh, landed in the United yeah. States, Ellie Manette landed in Morgantown. That is and right. so just in terms of, as we're sort of putting pins in the map of where folks land. Um, right. That's interesting yeah. to me that you grew up really close to Ellie, actually. Right. So it just happened by chance. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of funny because my dad is a metallurgist and he had always worked for a company that made st stainless steel. So steel oh, <laughs> has been, been in, in your life. <laughs> uh, yeah, my both my grandfathers uh, did something similar, too. So it's kind of kind of neat. But um, I started playing percussion just a little bit in high school and my high school got um, got a series of steel pans uh, during my senior year. 
But back then I didn't really play Pan that much. And after I graduated from high school, I went to West Liberty State College at the time. Now it's called West Liberty University. And the percussion teacher who used to teach was a former Northern Illinois University uh, student, and he had worked closely with Cliff Alexis. Um, so who that's built, another interesting. the drums at your high school? Uh, high school was Panyard, okay. and the uh, West Liberty was Cliff. But now they have different pans. Okay. I don't know what happened to Cliff pans, but um. That's that's a whole like if I had a billion dollars, I would just get in a van and scour the world and be right? like where's the closets where you keep the drums you don't use anymore because yeah. i bet there's a whole treasure trove of, of, right, of old right. pans around there yeah i will come and help you you know <laughs> that's our new our podcast is just from the road that's all we do is we're just in our van talking <laughs> yeah yeah so um so that is actually where i first started playing the steel pan so i was 18 mm -hmm. and um i transferred to west virginia university uh in morgantown west mm -hmm. virginia mm -hmm. and like josh said that is where uh the late ellie Manette uh resided for many many years and um i was a piano pedagogy major um before that i was actually a composition major but that only lasted for a semester and um yeah i became really really interested in learning more about the pan and Ellie had a workshop and I attended the workshop in 2000 and I met Ray Holman mm -hmm. and, and Andy Norell, Tom Miller, and many, many other people uh, from different parts of the country. And the following year, I went to Trinidad to play in Panorama. Um, it just happened, you know, I, I don't want to talk forever, so I'm just going to shorten it. And and uh, that is where I learned about Northern Illinois University mm. and Cliff Alexis, because uh, the, the year before I first went to Trinidad is when the World Music Festival was, um, was uh, happening. And that is when, where the uh, NIU Steel Band got the second place. What year was this? Uh, that was 2000. 2000, okay. Yeah, and I went to Trinidad in 2001. So what's, what, what else is interesting is in Trinidad, I was staying with Dr. Janine Remy, mm -hmm. who also graduated from NIU, knew Cliff really well, and she got a package one day, and it was from Cliff. So I'm like, okay, who is this Cliff guy from NIU? And she was explaining to me who he was, and, and, um, and when I went back to Morgantown, I started researching a little more about NIU, but back then internet wasn't all that big mm -hmm. in 2001. I think I checked my email once a week. Back right, in, right. I was, was at the fun. University of Akron. I went up to the computer lab and I was like, well, let's see. You know, and somebody right. emailed me like five days ago about a gig and I was like, cool, I'll call them back. It's like the idea that I would wait five days to respond to a gig now is just like crazy right. town to me. Right, but that's, you know, the way it was back then, no mm -hmm. smartphones, you know, no advanced technology. Um, but uh, long story short, uh, I went back and decided to uh, pursue my master's at NIU. Mm -hmm. and, but at the time, I had no idea about any history between Ellie and Cliff mm -hmm. and any history between WVU and NIU. I was just this ignorant, you know, Asian piano major. 
who just fell in love with the steel pan and went to Trinidad and heard about NIU and decided to go to NIU. Um, so I decided to go to NIU uh, specifically to learn how to build and tune. And Josh, uh, you've mentioned before that um, I was one of the people who learned how to build and tune uh, from Cliff, but there were other people who learned as well. Who, um, can, you, can you, just because I, I think, I think if we were calling ball, just like looking at data points, like mm -hmm. um, there's a couple names that you've mentioned that were sort yeah. of really important to the overall sort of education in the, like in terms of American high school, middle school and college education, like Ray Holman, Tom Miller, um, Andy Norell were in the room a lot sort of in those early days and Andy and Ray, like Andy bringing in folks like Relator and, and of course, Ray Holman, Tom mm -hmm. has a very close relationship with Ray. So Ray was one of the first sort of arrangers and performers who I met next to Cliff. It was like, I met Cliff first. And then like two years uh, later, Joan Wenzel brought Ray Holman or uh, brought Tom mm -hmm. and Tom brought Ray with him, uh, with him as just sort of like he's in town and we were doing a session. And, but Ellie, um, in terms of the places in the United States where you could go to study pan tuning, NIU and and WVU are one of are the two places where you could go. At least when I was in school, um, and more, I think I would say more people came out of WVU to go on and have tuning careers than I think came out of NIU. That's There's no nothing. value judgment there, but I think I'm just like I don't know as many of the tuners out of NIU as I do out of the right. out of the cliff scene. So can you just ex uh, expound my knowledge there? Like who else is doing tuning out of NIU? Other than sure. You? So actually, there was no um, tuning, building and tuning program at WVU. Ellie was an artist in residence, and he had uh, what was called the University Tuning Project. Mm -hmm. And that is where, um, like, people like Billy, uh, oh my gosh, I can't remember, Billy yeah. Sheeter. Billy Sheeter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Darren Dyke and Emily Robbie Davis. Yeah, of course. Yeah, Emily. Yeah, those people um, started to learn. Uh, how to build and tune and eventually Ellie um, established his own company the name changed multiple times mm. but um, he definitely had quite a number of apprentices so so time. did I get that wrong that there what there wasn't a degree program at WD right right oh, okay so, all right I misunderstood that but but in terms of his sort of like you mentioned the word apprenticeship I think maybe let's use that word at WVU you you could be his apprentice. He had many. And it's like, you know, so we named off like Billy Sheeter, Emily Lemmerman, Darren Dyke, Alan Coyle. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Like, uh, right. Alan Coyle came from Ellie school. Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. And you know, it's like, and they have now you can go and find folk like they're building bands for people. You know, yeah. there's a lot of folks in the cliff world. Was there a, was there a degree program at NIU? Uh, no. So it, um, so I actually majored in performance, but mm -hmm. I was able to specialize in steel pan building and tuning. Okay. All right. And when I went there, other students became interested in learning how to build and tune as well. So, um, uh, yeah, other people like Abe Breiling, Jace, Jason Schneider, uh, they started to learn. Uh, but before that, Shannon Dudley actually uh, went to study with Cliff. So Shannon um, has some experience learning how to build um, under Cliff's uh, mentorship and uh, uh, who else? But there weren't that many people. And I believe that is because that wasn't necessarily Cliff's vision to, yeah. to teach um, yeah, students to, uh, for them to become PAM builders and tuners. I just happened to be really interested and I contacted Cliff and 
he and uh, the late Owl Connor said, yes, you can come and, you know, study Pan and he'll, Cliff will teach me. So I said, okay. <laughs> and I came to NIU um, and realized how difficult it was, uh, definitely physically demanding. And tuning was so confusing, especially because Cliff's method and approach was totally different from Ellie's. How so? Ellie's seemed more systematic. Mm. Um, so he would set up the note, shape the note in a certain way, like oval notes, mm -hmm. and he would have certain spots and notes would respond like accordingly. But how Cliff approached it was he would look at each um, steel drums differently. So these containers were not made specific specifically for steel pans. Mm -hmm. So they react differently. Mm -hmm. So um, so he would tune um, based on how the note responds. So he will shape the note depending on how the note is shaped, uh, note is responding. So, um, but you know, there is a specific shape, but not like a oval. Mm -hmm. The same concept applies, but for me at the time, it was so different that I, I just, like my brain just froze and couldn't, really learn how to tune for the longest time so i just well, kept building and building and building yeah i mean his approach um i would love to sort of dig drill down deeper on the cliff approach to things because that's something i think you know i could speculate on ellie's approach but i've never i never actually met ellie you know like mm -hmm. but the the times that i've been in the room with cliff there was a little bit of a like sort of snatch the pebble from my hand uh sort of you know, you know, the, the sort of like, you're going to be like, catch the fly with the with the chopsticks sort of thing out of the air. And you're like, how? And he's just like, there is no how it's only do, you know, and you're just like, what, you know, and like, those sorts of things from Cliff, I found, like, he, his answers were very much a like, I'll tell you when you find it. And it's like, that's not an answer. Like, what do you what do you mean? And I don't want to it implies I'm, I'm implying a little bit here that like, he held his cards close to his chest. And it was only with people who he like implicitly trusted that he'd yeah. be like, here's how you shape this note. And I'm curious, am I, am I misdiagnosing any of what I've seen in Cliff? You don't, and I, no, you're not misdiagnosing at all. And that is the reason why it was so difficult for me too. Um, because, you know, he didn't necessarily give me specific answers in some cases. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, so what do you mean? Like, how, how do I do it? How do I approach it? And just say, um, observe, just watch what I do. And I would, <laughs> but it's so different from just watching and doing. Mm -hmm. So, so, um, so what's been happening more and more is Cliff's words coming back to me and, and just clicking and thinking, oh, this is what Cliff meant, but he didn't know how to explain and I can understand why it would be so hard to explain. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. I mean, as as the older I get, the more I understand my teachers and some of in their limitations in terms of what they're able to, how they're able to express their process to me. You know, whether it be I... Dr. Larry Snyder, who never had a very like it wasn't that his his approach wasn't process based. Like there was like stuff you had to go through. Uh -huh. but there was often like a bigger picture approach to your playing. Like 
you know, I remember he was the first person to, to sort of have me sort of analyze something, like think about something abstractly. Like, how would you play this if you were a mouse? How would you play this if you were a bear? Like, that seems sort of like third grade, like, you know, be more like a coconut or something, you know. <laughs> but I don't think it's unimportant for students to just have that part of their brain as a tool. Like, I wonder, like, is there is that a way to think about things, you know? But then you go study with, you know, Bob Van Sice at Yale, where the approach was like, here's how you're going to cue. And it was like, uh, you know, and there was like, we did that thousands of times, you know, and that's why I play in so percussion because we, we really drilled down on those details, but with tuning. Yeah. I've been in the room with Cliff and he's tuning something and he just will swear at a note and stomp away. And he's <laughs> like, that's what you have to do sometimes. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, and he would just yell and scream and like tell me that the note was a was it like an old like relative of his that he never got along with. And, like there was all this abstract stuff that he was applying to that note. Like it like yeah. it had a personality. Like there was a person in that note. And he right. had notes on those per like he kept notes on the C naturals at the drums at Akron that he would tune on the cellos and he's just like all right. Like he like he was about to get in an argument with a drunk family member at Thanksgiving or something, you know, like no, and, I can you knew it personally and that's hard to express a process there like how do you exp express how do you express to somebody why you keep your crazy uncle in the family like that's the, the, that's the thing you know it's family uh -huh. i made it you know yeah 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 um you know it is definitely important to step uh back and just like take a little break because when you're so focused for hours at a time uh, trying to to match all the pitches and you're hearing all kinds of partials everywhere else on the pan too so yeah so sometimes you just need to refreshing your hearing and just just calm down but cliff was you know who he was so he expressed uh you know different emotions the way he did mm -hmm. um and you're totally right about how he was you know in terms of who he wanted around mm -hmm. Uh, and trust was it. So, you know, there were different levels of trust. And, uh, you know, of course, he trusted his students. But, you know, did he let all of those students to come to his personal space? Uh, no, you know, uh, things like that. But, you know, people like you, Dr. Snyder, Matt Dudak, you know, like he loved you guys so much. He loved uh, the University of Akron so much. So, yeah, I mean, well, I, I want to let's let's move. I don't think it's like super important that I lay out what my background is, because I have like I have a million podcasts where I'm telling all the stories. So if people want to hear more about my back, I mean, I'll just do a quick like I went to Dover yeah. High School, which is in, in my in 1994 is when I 1993 is when I first saw any steel band at all, any steel drum at all. Joan Wenzel brought the steel band to the sort of instrument petting zoo at my middle school uh. or at my, my elementary school, which was like, we're going to do the trombone. Be here's a here's a string player. You know, like you do the ghosty thing on the strings and you make a sound on the clarinet just to be like, what instrument do you want to play? Yeah. And uh, when I was in fifth grade, I saw or sorry, excuse me, in fifth grade is when I saw the steel band because the, she brought the band to play. And then I was like, well, I mean, yeah, no, trombone's cool. It's nice to go be your reap. But like that, I want to do what she's doing. Like that sound, that mm -hmm. looks really rad. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up playing percussion. And then in my freshman year, like three or four years later, I joined the steel band at Dover High School, um, which is where I met Cliff for the first time. He, he came into tune um, probably 1997 or six or seven, I think. Is, okay. um, and he came into tune. 
Uh, the very first thing he did, and I've said this a million times, but this is like my first experience with police oppression was with Cliff. Where he was like, the first thing he did before he even said, hello, my name is, he was like, look at my head. <laughs> and I was like, what? He's like, oh. I've got scars on the back of my head. Oh my I was like, what? I was like, my name's Josh. <laughs> and right, I was right. like, I have to go to band practice, you know? And he's like, they used to beat me for playing Pan, and now you play it in high school. And I was like, I didn't, I now understand what he was trying to say to me in a loving way. But I like, at the time I sort of was like, I didn't, it didn't. I was, I felt like he was giving me some sort of like piece of paper with writing on it. I just didn't understand, but I knew that I needed to keep. And so I was like, all right. And then time goes on. And the more I talk to Cliff, the more I learn about the history of the instrument, the more I learn about police violence in the United States and slavery and racism and what all this, how all this intertwines immigration. Now I'm just like taking out those old things that Cliff gave me. And I'm like, Oh, that's what he, all right, this makes sense. Um, so then I went from high school, I went on, I went to Ohio State University for two years, um, played, they had a steel band there, actually, Michael Bump ran the steel band program there. Uh, they had a small set of cliff drums. They had about, right, right. about 15 drums, I think, of them, all oh. made by cliff. Oh, wow. Um, I think they're still there. Um, they were red for Ohio State. Um, okay, okay. <laughs> they might've been just painted red. They might've been, been NIU style drums that Cliff was like, paint them red and get them out of here, you know? <laughs> but anyway, they were, they were great drums. And I remember playing in the band there for two years, but the, the experience there in terms of what the steel band program was like, was like, it was more sort of like a class that met once every week and was sort okay. of, uh, auxiliary to the program. Yeah. <laughs> And I ended up transferring to University of Akron, actually, uh, uh, with the help of Tom Miller. I had a very intense meeting with Tom Miller at Ohio State where I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here. I don't, you know, and he was very encouraging. So I ended up going to transferring to Akron um, my junior year, lost all of my class credits and had to basically start over and take summer school oh, and like no. make up two years worth of methods classes and all this jazz when I got to Akron. Ohio State? From Ohio State. Well, Ohio State was on the, the quarter system at the time. Oh, cool. And so when I transferred to a semester school, the credits didn't ah, I all see. transfer. Some of them did, but not all of them. So I had to I had to take some things over again. But um, that's, again, then Cliff came back into my life there. He would come to Akron to tune all the time. I remember the first year he was there, that I, that I was there, uh, Larry Snyder made me go pick him up at the airport and drive him around. Uh -huh. uh, and I've told the story, too, that, like, I picked Cliff up at the airport and he makes me drive to the uh, a black barbershop in Akron, like in downtown okay. Akron, and makes me take. And he's telling me why he can't get his hair cut in DeKalb. Oh, and, I see. I see. Um, that this is his, like the place where he feels the most comfortable getting his hair cut. And I'm just like, there's like a thousand barbershops. Why are we going here? You know, I did not understand anything about what black hair yeah. needed. You know? Yeah, same, same with me, actually. I only go to Asian hair salons. Right. But I don't like. I, I mean, I'm trying to be careful here. Like, I don't see your hair and think, like, that needs to be treated differently than mine. But, of course, like, of co like it's just you go to the places you're most comfortable, like, to have your hair styled. And it, it's different, actually. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. How? I mean, how? Sorry, quickly <laughs> right. tell me how. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> right, right. Uh, uh, thicker, more hair. And, um, yeah, a lot more than, say, you know, Caucasians. Yeah, okay. so... See? It takes a little more time. Yeah. I have, I have no idea. And so, but Cliff is just like, so we go to this barbershop and I've told the story a thousand times, but I just, I think it's important to say it again. Like he, he, we walk in the barbershop and I'm like, 
oh my, I'm not supposed to be in here. <laughs> and he goes, sit over here and don't say a word. Like, okay. So for two hours, he gets his hair cut for about 15 of those men of those two, 15 minutes of those two hours, they're actually cutting his hair and they're just talking. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's, that's what this is. Yeah. And now the more I learn about, again, like what slavery is, what oppression is, all the colonialization, all that stuff. It's like, this is where, this is therapy. This is where Cliff and these gentlemen feel comfortable talking about. Yeah, this is where they get their news. This is where they get gossip. Like all of this stuff they can't do in a white society. And yeah. and so, again, just to like, that was my one of my first experiences with Cliff in like face-to-face. -face. And then we get, and then... I have to go pick up Bugsy Sharp at the airport and Cliff wow. comes with me and they're like, I'm hearing them talk and I don't understand anything. Right. right. I cannot follow anything they're saying. I hear the word boy pop out a million times. Like, <laughs> yeah, boy. Like all the time. Like that. I was like, that's all I understood. Um, and then I went through, then I went to Trinidad the following year. Um, okay. Against Cliff's wishes, I think. And I went down because oh, Bugsy and... Yeah. Bugsy invited us and I told Cliff, I was like, we're going to Trinidad. And he's like, you're an idiot. And um, like, he basically tried to discourage me over and over and over again. And not. I'm, I'm kind of surprised to hear that actually. Not yeah. in like a, like, don't go, but just a, like, he was always be like, don't do this. Be very careful here. It was like, yeah. there was a lot of sort of like caution and fear right. injected into yes. the conversation. And I was like, why is he trying to get me? Like, why is he telling me all this? Does he not want me to go? I guess that's what I'm saying. It felt like he didn't want me to go, but I was like, okay. Anyway, and so I went to Trinidad and played in phase two and then graduated, went to Yale for grad work um, and then got a job teaching at NYU, running the steel band program there. And now I run the program there with, uh, with Kendall Williams and he and I both teach a steel band at Princeton University as well. So right. that's sort of the like, the nickel and dime tour of my life with Cliff, but I want to like, I want to sort of refocus this back to Cliff in particular. Can you, you mentioned like he was born in 1937, which is a date I didn't know. Yeah, like I kind of knew roughly how old he was when he passed, but like I didn't, I'm terrible at math like that. Like um, Cliff was born in the heat of, and sort of grew up as a child. Like when he became a sentient being and was like able to have memories and see things and identify things like this was during World War II. Like he was six or seven years old during World War Two, right? Right. And right. Oh, was right. seeing all of the stuff, like the things I'm now telling my students about, like you know Yankee Dollar being written by Mighty Sparrow because the soldiers were there was a naval base. Like Cliff was a kid was seeing all this stuff, and right. I'm wondering if you can sort of for folks lay out a little bit of like what Cliff's timeline was that like as a child mm -hmm. to when he passed away, and like what got him. Like sure. touring with Liberace, like all these little sort of things that, that get glossed over. Like what was Cliff's sort of butterfly yeah. path through life? Hopefully I'll get everything right. Uh, so yeah, you're going to miss something and you're going to regret it later that you didn't say it, but it's okay. Right. We'll, we'll figure right. it out. Um, the biggest part about Cliff's childhood, especially when he was little, uh, was losing both of his parents at young age. So wow, I didn't know that either. Um, his mom, I, you know, I could be wrong. I, I think his mom, uh, passed away after giving birth to his youngest brother and his father passed away at work. He fell inside of, um, something, a uh, big machine and he mm -hmm. passed away. So, uh, life 
for the little Cliff and his siblings were really, really difficult. And, um, you know, he lived with his stepmom for a while, but she, of course, didn't treat him or his siblings nicely. And he went to live with his, um, he called grandma, but was she actually his grandmother? And he lived with his um, cousin and, um, and of course, uh, he, it wasn't a pleasant experience for him. So I was telling him that if that didn't happen, he probably didn't feel the need to go to a pan yard because that pan yards were not a place for people to go to. It was for bajons, uh, vagabonds, you know, people who were outcasts from the society. Can I, so, do you mind me asking like, if, and if it's too personal and you don't want to divulge it um, on Cliff's behalf, um, just say so, but like what was the household he was growing up in? Was it just like disarray? Was there, was there violence? Was there abuse? Like what, what was the reason? I mean, I, I could, I, listen, I've lost a parent. So like that enough is enough to break your psyche and cause right. you to have a horrible time. But like, was there anything specific that, that uh, maybe I don't know about Cliff's upbringing about his life? As a um, kid? I guess just not being treated with respect. And in some ways he, um, had to do a lot more chores than other children. Mm. So perhaps he felt like, like a servant in a way, like he had to do mm. a lot of chores and he wasn't treated equally like other children. Um, it was really painful to listen when um, he would talk about his childhood and that never went away. Even, you know, when he was 82 years old uh, and that's when he passed away. Mm -hmm. um, he didn't really go into details, but yeah, anytime he spoke about it, like he just looked like he just wanted to cry. Um, I mean, as you, know? you say that, as you say that, like I've never, I've seen Cliff on the emotional sort of spectrum. I've seen him really stoic i've seen mm -hmm. him laugh mm -hmm. and i've seen him really angry yeah i've never seen him cry and like that that kind of like breaks my heart to even address the fact that that yeah. was a thing he could do <laughs> you know? yeah yeah and i i believe his personality was developed because of those experiences he had to be tough mm -hmm. he experienced so much anger and sadness um so so he didn't have anywhere he belonged. And as a teenager, you know, he didn't really want to go home and, and he started going to a pan yard. And that is where he met a lot of people who he could relate to, people who welcomed him, where, you know, he could learn how to play music. And, you know, I'm sure that helped him with his self-esteem and confidence. And um, and when he was, oh, how old was he? He was selected to be the arranger of stereophonics and actually uh, enter Panorama, mm -hmm. the very first Panorama in 1963. Yeah. Is it 62 okay. or the 63? I, I want to say 60. It's the year that Dan is the man in the van. North Stars won it. Yeah. I think yeah. I want to say 63. I think you're right. Okay. It's 1960. And Mama Moss, the next year, they won again, I think. In, yeah, 64. I think that's right. Um, but if it's, if it's wrong, 
I'll I'll correct it publicly somewhere, but I think that's yeah, right. I, I should know all the dates. You know, I should like done some like reviews beforehand. Well, but just go ahead and keep talking. I'll Google it and just okay. I want to be sure that we're on the record here. Um, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So that happened, and he uh, was uh, selected to be on the first national uh, steel band of Trinidad and Tobago, and uh, they toured. Uh, the United States, uh, one of the places where they went was Mackinac Island in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And that's where people were in awe and people enjoyed their performance so much and showed them so much um, appreciation and love that he and other band members were not receiving in Trinidad and Tobago. So because it was still viewed as like like vagabonds and, and right and stuff. right so and a it lot was of 1963 people... you're you're right so, oh my so. okay i'm terrible at dates so like i'm, I'm with you 100 yeah so um he um you know it's really interesting like i knew i remember all of these dates you know when cliff was present then now like they're slipping away but anyway so he and band members went back to uh trinidad trinidad but he still had the visa for united states mm -hmm. So he decided to go back to the United States. And this story is, is something he shared with so many people, but um, he only had $5 with him when he was coming to the United States. And he went to New York and he didn't even know, um, oh, what did he like? Somebody was supposed to pick him up, but that person didn't show up. So he just stood there and uh, Trini woman, uh, recognized him because he was on the tour and was he on TV or like somehow like she rec no what was it but she recognized him from him being a steel band person and um and she let him stay with her and her family her husband and and from there he uh, met people like Ellie Manette. Uh, again, he, he was uh, with Ellie. Uh, he was an invader, so he idolized Ellie uh, when he was in um, Trinidad. How old? How much older was Ellie than Cliff? He was 10 years older than also, Cliff. And how old was Ellie when he passed? Oh. Because they, they, Ellie passed like what, three or four years ago? I, again, like I'm yeah. totally dates, but no, I didn't I'm... realize that Ellie was that much older than Cliff. I'm guessing he was 91 or so. He passed away a year before, two years before. Right. Cliff. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize that he was that much older. So so when he was in Invaders, Ellie was like an like an elder player. He was in the, the leader. He was like everything. Yeah. He um yeah, was the builder tuner and he was the leader. And um yeah, so they uh met in Brooklyn again. Ellie um actually uh, moved to New York um, a year or two later than Cliff. And that is where they met uh, Murray Narell, Andy Narell's father, Jeff Narell's father. And um, uh, Cliff, uh, uh, I don't know if he started. Sorry, I should have um, oh, yeah, reviewed mean... all the stuff, but uh, uh, BWI Sunjets was the band that he was arranging for, but he wasn't building or tuning. And he ended up moving to Minnesota and started teaching high school steel band. So let me ask, sorry to interrupt. <laughs> and this always cracks my cracks me up and I feel terrible. Yeah. So I just want to sort of 
just admit to my why this is hilarious to me. A Trinidadian man yeah. comes from the Caribbean yeah. and makes Minnesota? Like New yeah. York, at least I could understand yeah. because there's a big Caribbean population there. Right, right. And immigration was starting to pick up from the Caribbean a lot more into New York at the time. So that, yeah. But Minnesota? Like right. there's, it's a flat tundra of snow and ice. It's a lovely yes. place. And I love the beer and the food and the, the, the wild <laughs> rice. Everything is great there. But, but how did Cliff land in St. Paul, Minnesota? <laughs> uh, because of his ex-wife. Um, his ex-wife um, uh, was from Minnesota. Or was she from New York? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. But um, but they moved together and she had a job. And uh, he was able to convince um, uh, St. Paul Central High School to start a steel band. So he was there for 14 years or so. Oh, until okay. Owl O'Connor at Northern Illinois University saw his name or heard his name through the Navy Steel Band, but yeah. because Cliff was tuning for them for a while. Mm -hmm. And Owl tried to convince Cliff to come and tune the pans that um at NIU. Mm -hmm. And yeah, he would he would he would uh, come in tune, but I believe Al had similar experiences like Dr. Larry Snyder, where he would call and call and call, and Cliff would either ignore or hang up. Well, can, this is, yeah, I mean, this is, we talked a little bit earlier about trust, and Cliff Cliff is someone, like, to get into, like, if, if you have 10 circles, 10 rings of trust that sort of radiate out from you, and the 10th one is, like, the stranger you are in behind in line at, like, Starbucks getting your coffee, and the person closest to you is your husband or wife who you trust yeah. implicitly. Like, to get to that inner ring of Cliff, like, you had to call him 15 times and get hung up on. Like, that was just the thing you had to do. But yeah. just to say something out loud, that doesn't – the more I learn about Cliff as in his upbringing, I understand that more. But right, right. I – that is not a good way to build trust with people. The way the, the way Cliff handled it, you know what I mean. I'm just I want to just say that out loud. Like, it's it's worth noting that maybe hanging up on people when they call you isn't the wisest choice. But on the other hand, it is also worth it if you believe in something to keep calling back and try to like make that, which Larry did, which Al O'Connor did. Yeah, so I'm surprised to hear about so many people who try to, you know, keep <laughs> trying to be in touch with Cliff because, yeah. but I'm sure like a lot of people are like, oh, forget him, you know, like, oh, he's so rude. And, you know, this, and that. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of people said that too. But um, like you said, yeah, because of how, you know, what he went through as a child, you know, it was trust was something that was really hard to receive for Cliff and um to gain as well yeah, yeah i mean I, I don't want to be disingenuous i think cliff has every right you know i think it's important for people to be okay with like why isn't he getting back to me like that's ridiculous or it, you know i had to call him 10 times like that feels a certain way it feels like that isn't the way people should do things i do think it's also important especially in the world that we're in now where we're talking about people's backgrounds and their upbringings and the yeah. things they've had to deal with that I, maybe i haven't i grew up with both of my parents yeah, yeah, me too. Drove me, too. me to things and let me go to music, you know, music concerts and took me to Metallica when my girlfriend broke up with me. You know, like, like. Oh, like you those, have some awesome parents. That's my awesome. first, yeah, my first live concert was Metallica with my wow. mom and dad and my wow. brother. And yeah, well, I was like, it was nice to go because it felt nice because I love Metallica. But, you know, mm -hmm. you ever been to a rock concert or metal concert with your parents, Yuko? No, never, never. Yeah. 
yeah. it's not that fun. It's it's, it's sort, sort of embarrassing. You want to be there by yourself. But anyway, um, but Cliff didn't have that. Right. So, and you so, know, and plus, like, he had seen so many of, you know, um, his friends or other people from Trinidad and Tobago being taken advantage of by some people from the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody would go down and record footages of steel bands uh, practicing, recording, um, you know, uh, uh, audio, and they'll make something out of it when they come back to the United States. But people in Trinidad never heard from them. You know, they were not really credited or like they were not, you know, so going through experiences like that so many times, uh, I believe, made him and other people really, really cautious as well. Like you had to be really, really smart. Yeah. Well, he, yeah. he taught me, he was the person in my life who taught me, sorry, I'm just closing the notification about our next podcast, but um, okay. the- Oh yeah, that's he, soon. That's all right. And we'll, we'll wrap up here in a couple, but he, he was the first person I think in my life who, I mean, I got it in various forms, like from, you know, my grandparents or my dad, my dad was this way, sort of like an honor, like an honor culture approach to things like honor culture is maybe even the wrong word, because that's a bit of a broad brush. But like, there was a like, if you're in the room with me, I need to know that you if this room's on fire, you're going to help me. Like that sort of like, it's so if like, if you're the type of person that's going to rat somebody out all the time, if you're going to like, always be the person who says you're doing something wrong, or like, that's not someone I want to be around. I don't trust that person right. when we're in the heat of the battle. And Cliff, I think because of the sort of the crucible that he grew up in in Trinidad um, and the time in which he did, which was a British government at the time, it was a British island up until 1962. Um, you know, so he's living not only, he's not even living under his own rule, <laughs> you know, so that's something I can't identify with. Right. And he was the first person to be like Ben Toth, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. slept under a marimba that's all i needed and i was like that makes no sense to me i can sleep under a marimba and he's like but you haven't and it was like oh i mean that's true okay and he's like i need two cheeseburgers no meat just the cheese diet coke I was like, <laughs> okay. okay and then i would go get it for him and then like i would just sit quietly and it was like that's how sometimes just shutting your mouth and doing what somebody asks you to do is like, that's how you build a relationship. And oh my God, you go, it changed my life. Yeah. It has made my relationship. Now it's made some parts of my life scarier because, you know, that that's a complicated thing to build trust with people. And, and when, when your ideology, my ideology doesn't line up with cliffs on everything, right, you know, right. but yeah, that's not a deal breaker for me. And it, right. Cliff taught that to me. And so anyway, just to say like, and I'm sitting here right now holding this. Oh, yeah. Which I wanted to just show people, um, you know, Cliff passed away a couple years ago. And this is, was his, you sent this to me um, yeah. and, and a scarf as well, which Stephanie has. Because Cliff, every time I called him, I used to just call him and be like, just out of the blue, just to see how he was doing. And the first words out of his mouth would always be, how's Stephanie? Oh. And he always oh. asked about her and they don't think, I don't think they even knew each other that well. I think they met once, but he just told me as soon, like the first time he met her, he was just like, don't mess this up, Quillen. <laughs> <laughs> and I think he was like, you know, he had, I think you and him maybe were glowing, growing closer. And so he was realizing the priorities of like, when you find somebody in your life, that's oh. really going to keep you alive five years longer than you would have otherwise. Like, 
don't mess this up, you know? And this was his magnifying glass that um, he would use to tune when his eyes got bad because of his diabetes and other things like, and it still has some stains on it. Yeah. yeah. And I keep this with me right on my desk just to sort of remind myself that there's always a way you can see things clearer. Yeah. And it doesn't mean it's going to be easy and it doesn't mean that you're going to find the answer, but just keep asking questions and keep talking and keep looking. Um, So anyway, I thank you for that, Yuko. And in that spirit, I want to just like, um, for you and me, I'm curious, my intentions, I want to make sure our intentions line up here for this podcast. Um, For me, I think it was really important to lay out a bit about what Cliff meant to both of us. Because I want, I want for this podcast to be nothing, I don't want there to be an agenda in terms of what we feel something should be or shouldn't be. I want this to just be like, oh, cool. I didn't know that Cliff grew up in the household that he did. I didn't know that. Oh. <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea that he arranged for stereophonic in 1963. No yeah. idea. I had no idea that Ellie was 10 years older than him. I had no idea that the both of them met Murray Norell in New York. Now, I had a conversation with Andy where he was talking about his dad, Murray, starting these 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 after-school programs. Yeah. And it's like, so for, what I, for me, that's just like I've got all these cords just dangling around in my mm-hmm. life. And I'm just like, oh. I can plug that one together. All right, good. Now, like, and so that for me is what I want this experience for me to be. Wonderful. So for you, what do you think? How do you want this to sort of meet your your, your selfish needs maybe? Oh, uh, about uh, Cliff's. About the podcast. Why why are you interested in doing this podcast? Because I'm curious um, and I'm realizing so much on like what I don't know like the kind of people who I don't know. And, um, you know, the world is becoming closer. And um, yeah, I just want to know. And you are the person, you know, who I would love to, you know, I wanted to uh, find out with. Uh, And thanks to you for offering me this, you know, platform to uh, share with you. And um, and, um, I believe a lot of people just don't know, just like me, like, you know, you may see it on Facebook or other social media, and you may develop, you know, different type of, um, you know, thoughts and uh, opinions. But I feel like once we talk to each other mm-hmm. and understand each other, I mean, not in every cases, um, but a lot of um, things like kind of get resolved. Mm-hmm. or we get to appreciate each other more and appreciate our differences. Mm-hmm. So something I've been noticing, realizing a lot more is like, uh, I don't feel similar <laughs> to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, just thinking and feeling that's okay. <laughs> it's yeah. okay, you know, uh, mm-hmm. to feel different or, you know, to find other people who may be different, but, you know, uh, we have something in common, pan. You know, we yeah. all love Pan. I think the thing, I mentioned it up front, maybe maybe before we got on the record, but like I, the thing that's been dawning on me the older I get and the more I teach and the more I get involved in the, the New York Pan scene or in Trinidad or whatever is that like I have been, I have my hand on, on an elephant, which is the Pan world. And I've had my hand, where on the elephant I've had my hand is because I was born in a cornfield in Ohio. I went to, I met the people I did. And so to me, the, the pan world is like, oh, this, you know, it's, it's, it's rough and it's, but it's, there's a little hair on it and smooth and there's, it's, it must be really durable, like where I'm at. Right. And this is what the pan world is. Except if you talk to Cliff, Cliff's hands are on the trunk. Yeah. 
Mm. And to him, the pan world is completely different. And when we talk to Mia Gormandy, oh. her hand might be on the foot. Yeah. And to her, so to me, it's like we're all touching an elephant. We just aren't calling it that. Like mm-hmm. we're all identifying different parts of this. Um, and I don't know if there's a right answer to any of this. It was illuminating to talk to Mia about how the Japanese uh, oh. culture mm-hmm. approaches pan. And like, anyway, I just want to, I want to know more about the elephant. And I won't even know if, like, I'm assuming it's an elephant because of the people I've talked to. Maybe it's a giraffe. I don't know. Like, so I'm, that to me is what I just want to get my hands on more parts of all that we've all experienced so that we can correctly identify what it is this thing can do, you know, and where it came from and where it's going to go, where it can't go. I mean, there are some limitations to an elephant, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I don't know. Maybe there are some things that Pan can't do. Maybe there... I don't even know if that's a proper question to ask, but like, let's just have, let's keep talking. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Yuko, let's take a little bit of a break. We're going to chat okay. with uh, Sheldon Thwaites and Andre White to sort of the, the, the youngest um, and most sort of uh, like fire breathing performers and arrangers in the, in the New York scene right now. And so I'm really pumped to talk to those guys, um, but let's take a little bit of a break. We'll come back. Okay. I really appreciate this deep dive on Cliff. Um, it really sort of, I, I learned, I've known the man for 20 years and I've learned more about him. So thank you. That's exactly what oh, this was supposed pleasure. to be. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah, and thank but, you. All right. Well, we'll see you later. Let's uh, log off and we'll see you in a little bit. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks, Yuko. Thank you. And he has a second parcel here and it's not ringing enough for me. 